Here's why I think today's show is going to be important for you. Marcy is a 27-year deep high school teacher, so she gets it. She understands. But more than that, what I when I found Marcy, when I we we crossed paths I, and I started looking into her background and her bio and everything like that. She has a podcast called Permission to Heal. And this is something that's bigger than you think it is. Dr. Patch Adams told me your grandmother doesn't have Alzheimer's. Your family has Alzheimer's. Treat the family. And what parents don't really embrace, I mean, look, you're here on this show, so you're looking for your, your hope. You're looking for your support. You're looking for your tools, tactics, tricks, and techniques. There's more iterations for you, Marcy. Is that you're looking for this, this skill. The biggest skill that we have been promoting that every guest, every guest I have ever had is you have to take care of yourself. You have to deal with your own shit. You've got to focus on the mirror, not the finger mirrors up. And we find ourselves accustomed to our identity that's based in trauma. So to change as a parent, you literally have to change your identity. And that's why it's so hard. But there's another step in there, and that's giving yourself permission to do this work, permission to face what you need to face. That's why Marcy Brockman is here. Thank you for joining me on Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey. Please listen, like, subscribe, share, and review Beyond Risk and Back because that's how parents find us. And finding parents who need support is our greatest gift we can give each other as parents is just supporting. So please pass us around. My guest today is Marcy from Permission to Heal. Marcy, thank you for joining. My pleasure, Aaron. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. How on earth? I have always said teachers are not in it for the income. They're in it for the outcome. Yeah. And, and I think the evidence is very clear because none of you are all be none of you are accused of doing it for the money. <laughs> Hell no. Some months I'm not sure how I'm making my mortgage payment. Oh yeah. my God. When a teacher has to donate blood so that she can buy supplies for her students, it's just, it still remains one of the greatest criminal acts we perpetrate on a daily basis is underfund our education system. Yeah, you're, you'll get no argument from me. Yeah, well, I'm from a family of teachers. I've been a teacher in, and I, I've owned my own school for the last nine years. So, I mean, we get it. We get it. Yeah. So, thank you for your service. I believe teachers are warriors. The warrior archetype, like I said, does it for the does it for the outcome, not the income. So, you're in this for a bigger reason than Marcy's mortgage. So, we're. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. thank you for doing it for so long. It's been my pleasure. It's been a, an unexpected but beautiful mission in my life. Did not expect to be a teacher. It was not on my roadmap at all. And when I was 26, 27, I fell into it and never looked back. So let's let's get a question answered then for the audience. Yeah. Is the, the why the hell would you do this? How did you end up where you are? Where did this start? The middle 27 years is high school teaching, and now there's podcasting and supporting families and mental health and your audience and stuff. How did all of this happen? 
I had this notion when I was uh, an adolescent that I wanted to be in the business world. Um, I live on Long Island in New York, and I had this vision of myself with a briefcase and and my little sneakers and my heels in my bag, and I was going to walk up whatever Madison Avenue, just just name road, and and go to my office job. And I sort of envisioned myself in PR or advertising, something creative. And when I got there, I freaking hated it. Really? These people were walking around like they were curing goddamn cancer. And they were trying to get magazines or newspapers to cover their wallpaper company. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So that didn't last long. And then I, I did a series of other jobs. I kept making left turns and right turns. I was a wedding photographer, and I hated that. And I was a portrait photographer in a studio, and I hated that. And I was um, a computer graphic artist for an advertising agency, and that got boring. And these are all wonderful jobs for other people. Sure. It was just not a good fit for me. I found myself doing public relations and fundraising for the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And here I still didn't really like my job for the most part, but I discovered that I really loved working with the kids in the center. That when I got to involve them in fundraising things or activities, that that was more fun than all the other bullshit with grownups that I was asked to do. And then... For some reason, I, I was 23 years old. For some reason, I have absolutely no idea why um, I got fired like the day before Thanksgiving. And I didn't know that I could fire, uh, complain for fi being fired without cause. You know, I was 23. What the hell right, did I know? Right. But I didn't really like the job so much anyway. So I left. And my favorite aunt sat me down and she said, OK, it's time now. You need to admit that you're a teacher and go back to school and figure this out. Wow. Because you're floundering and you're going from job to job. And, you know, the whole family has known since you were five that this is who you were meant to be. Just sort of stop fighting it. And I looked at her like, well, why the freaking hell didn't anyone <laughs> say this to me before I was 23? Like, are you kidding? 23, 24, 25, something like that. I think I was about 25. So I did some research. Within a month, I was in grad school to be a teacher, to get my certification. And um, I got my first job right out of grad school, at, which is where I'm working still. And because I had such a crappy track record with everything else, I just had this idea that I wasn't going to stay there for very long. And I'm like, I'll give it five years. And five years became 10 and 10 became 15. And, and what I realized is that it not only is like a perfect combination of all of my skills and, uh, you know, I, I get to use my organization, I get to do my graphic art and all sorts of stuff within lesson planning, and I get to be organized and I get to create and read and talk about books with kids and, and life. And I feel like I'm, I'm guiding them through learning how to be emotionally intelligent to exploring how to communicate and how they feel about things, to explore how to express themselves and how to listen and respect other people's differing ideas and how to incorporate what they're learning into their own vision of the world and rebirth themselves. And the fact that they pay me anything for this is amazing to me. As long as the grown-ups leave me alone and I can just be with my kids, <laughs> good. You know? <laughs> It's the administration getting in the way. You know, 27 years and I'm not bored yet. 
it's just been life-changing. I've learned mindfulness. I've learned that no matter what of a shitstorm is going on in my own life, when I'm standing in front of my class for that 40 minutes, all of that goes away and it's all about them. Whatever aches and pains I have in my body, whatever distractions going on in my head, it's all about them for that 40 minutes. So to me, it's the most Buddhist profession in the universe because you have to 100% be on and have the focus be on the students in order to be effective at it. So my own personal life, I, I kind of, I got married and uh, married a man who was suspiciously like my mom, who was a narcissistic, abusive pain in the ass. And my mom also had the delightful, delightful problem of being an opiate addict on top of that. Oh, so, um, so I was sort of used to being sidelined and emotionally abused without realizing that that was what was going on. I was being gaslit constantly. And all of that kind of felt normal to me, um, which is why I married him, because he felt like home, because he felt like my mom. Sure. So I divorced him after 12 years of marriage and having two children. And then my mom's opiate addiction got worse. And I had to face the, the, the horrible choice of either perpetuating the mental illness and the fallout from the addiction onto my own children, or I had to cut ties with my mom. She kind of left me no choice. The mama lion came out and I had to protect my cubs and my den, and I kicked her out of my life. And she refused therapy, she refused addiction counseling, she refused rehab, she refused everything, called me every name in the book, and I slammed the door in her face. And although it was the most difficult thing I had to do in some respects, it was the easiest thing I did in um, in more important respects because I was able to – I knew I was right and I knew I was doing the right thing and I was able to take care of my kids the way I needed to and figure out how to take care of myself. So we instantly all went into therapy <laughs> or went back into therapy and I was able to parent them in a way that I would have needed or in the ways that I would have wanted to have been parented by my own parents. Simultaneous to doing that, embarked on a really long, painful journey of reparenting myself. And, and through that, or as a, a result of that, is the book that I wrote, uh, which is my memoir of this whole entire journey called Permission to Land, Searching for Love, Home, and Belonging. I took my journals, I had been writing in a journal since 1983. You said like 35 plus years. Yeah, I've got boxes of books and, you know, megabytes of information stored on my computer uh, of journal entries going back to 1983. And so I, I went back to my journals, you know, like if I'm going to understand how I got into this freaking mess, and it was 2019. And I've gotten this far, I got remarried, everything is, it was going well in my life, but I want to finish the last steps or the next steps in this healing journey. So I went back to all of my 35 years of journaling and read everything. Wow. And thank God for my husband, because I was a freaking mess. And there were so many things that I did not remember, Aaron. I was calling my best friend from high school. Who the hell is Carla? Like, we were both so upset about Carla. Who the freaking hell is Carla? She had no idea who Carla was either. You know, it's just one of many examples. But through reading all these journals, I started to see that there were patterns and that a lot of the things that my mom, a lot of the patterns that my mom couldn't escape 
were really the fallout of intergenerational trauma. Yeah. And when I went back to my grandmother and I went back to my great-grandmother, I started to see the patterns that their life experiences created for the next generation. And it started... I started to see myself less as a victim and more as just a product of intergenerational traumatic experience. And the study of epigenetics now can get in and scientifically prove that you're right. My great-grandmother emigrated from the pogroms of Russia in the early part of the 19th, of the 20th century. Jeez. She got married to a man who was an abusive, adulterous drunk who gambled away most of their money. She lived in a tenement in Brooklyn, had four, three sons, all who died in infancy, and she had four daughters and doted on and were, was like helicopter parent to like the nth degree of course. because she was poor, because she was an immigrant, because she was in essence a single mom because her husband was worth nothing. And she had four, three kids die before her four, her right. four babies were born, her four daughters were born. So then my grandmother was the oldest of these four daughters, and then she had kids. So my grandmother was born in 1915, was a teenager through the Depression, got married in the early 40s, um, or 1939, I should say, had my mom at 40, in 1944, and right at the tail end of the war, right. my mom was a sickly child. And so my grandmother obviously knew that she had three dead baby brothers, or older brothers, and now her oldest is sick. So she was coddling my mom. And my mom got this idea. Now, she can't corroborate any of this because she died in 2013. So this is me just making sense out of sure. what I think makes sense. Sure. But I think that my mother learned early that the way she could derive love and belonging and connection and feeling <sighs> special, feeling doted on, was to be a child and to be a patient. And she sort of got stuck in that. And what I always perceived as extreme narcissism, I think was the, her development arrested, stopped in the egoic stage of the child. And because she was always a child and never saw beyond her own needs, you could say that that was narcissistic, sure. but she came at it from a different direction. She was always hypochondriacal, which came out of this always needing to be the, the, the patient and the victim. And she always expected all of these. She expected us to read her mind. She expected everybody to dote on her. She expected to always be forgiven for everything that she did, even if she took no responsibility for it. Like all the things that you'd think a typical seven-year-old would do. Right. And now the seven-year-old was really in charge of my development and my growth and my education. And my dad, you know, worked 99 jobs because my mom didn't work at all. And... He has his own little bit of narcissism in him, and there were a lot of decisions that he was making for his own benefit that really just dismissed my needs completely because I wasn't even on his map. I found myself as a, a very young child parenting myself 
and telling the grown-ups what I needed because they were too involved in their own Mishigas to do anything for me. Anyway, so you, you go forward a bunch of years and now Marcy is a, an adolescent people pleaser. Uh, her mother is telling her that every relationship requires sacrifice. And I took that as to mean that I needed to be the sacrificial lamb, that I was the one who had to give, 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 give. And didn't matter that I resented that other people took. What mattered was that that was the way I felt like, the only way I felt like I could get love and belonging. So I started to see patterns like these, which allowed me to address them and how they were playing out in my adult relationships with my ex-husband, with men that I had dated between, you know, while I was uh, single for 10 years, and really helped me address how I was parenting my kids and what I would have what I would have wanted, the type of parenting I would have wanted, I was then able to, with this new awareness, be a better mom to my my children. You know, some people said I was a little too free to be you and me, if you know what that means, but uh, I don't think so at all. I think what I was what I firmly believe in is that children need to feel loved and nurtured, but they also need to feel respected. And they need to feel some sense of autonomy on their lives because so much of what we uh, of of children's lives is not up to them. You know, we make them go to school and we make them eat when we want when they're little and we tell them what to wear and who they can be friends with. And as they get older, they're entitled to to not only make some some of those, if not all of those decisions themselves, but they need latitude to make mistakes with a safety net. You know, and, um, you know, so I was divorced and my kids split time between my husband and my ex-husband, I mean, my house and my ex-husband's house. And it was it was difficult to co-parent with him because, like I said before, he was a narcissist like my mom. And so I always felt like I was undoing the damage that would happen to my kids. I was undoing his parenting by the time they came to me. Of course, he would say differently, but let's not get into that. And so all of this wound up being in my book because I started to figure out who I was as a person in my mid-40s and or late 40s and how all of this eventuated, how it all wound up. There's a couple things you bring up that I think are very important to express to my listeners. And number one, if you think or know that you are a child of a narcissist parent, get help. Go online and look up children of narcissist parents, and you will see you belong to an elite cadre of reactionary adults that have a unbelievably justifiable experience of struggle. And the markers are clear. The amount of effect, the, the absolute trauma of growing up with a narcissist parent is astounding. I have a lot of uh, uh, youth clients who are children of narcissists, and it's hard to work with the parents in a therapeutic manner. The second- Because the parents put on an act. We tried to do family therapy with my ex-husband and my kids, but he would always put on this act like he was the greatest man and and he would snow all of the narcissists. When I went into therapy with my mom as an adolescent, she'd snow the the narcissist. So everybody else was being gaslit and I'm- I'm left feeling like I'm crazy. That's it right there. What you just said is that if you can look at your adulthood and think back to your time with parents and 
you have the question, am I the crazy one? Right. Just Google children of narcissists and yeah. recognize that that question alone, that how they act makes you think that you're going crazy. And it's astounding that process and that work. However, and this is, this is why I wanted you on the show. First of all, your story is spectacular. Second of all, your experience with adolescence and being a parent and being a mom and having the struggles and going through the healing process. What, what is so important for me and why I wanted you to tell your story to my audience is because somewhere in there, two things emerged. Number one, having to confront your own identity. At some point, we have to admit, we have to stand in front of the idea, what part of this struggle with my child, with my spouse, with my parents, am I addicted to? Because we can blame the children, we can blame the spouse, we can blame the ex, we can blame the parents. But at some point, we are still attached to the relationship through our identity or through our actions. And our desire, our fulfilling prophecies of, how do I say this without hurting a parent's feelings, but, but your transparency and your brutal honesty matches mine and matches this question, mm -hmm. can you look at the struggle that your child is going through and ask yourself, what are you continually doing that's keeping the struggle alive? Because this identified patient, this, this knowing that you have to show up for your, your child as a caretaker, as a nurse, as a therapist, as a rescuer, is fulfilling some lacking childhood need that you have not reconciled. And that is hard to say to parents. They don't want to be blamed. And I get it. I'm a parent. You don't want to be blamed. But at some point, if I don't say, Aaron, which part of this dis- Right. Yeah, this dis-ease is my responsibility, not my child's. My child, it's a child. We're talking about children. And that piece is huge. Then the second is, is your reoccurring theme of permission. Your book, Permission to Land. Your podcast, Permission to Heal. So at some point, first, please talk about identity through the struggle and addiction to the struggle. Which, which can be, can, can speak of enabling and speak of codependency, but quite frankly, I hate those terms. So talk about the addiction to the struggle and breaking free of it, and then talk about giving permission to yourself. My addiction to the struggle was that my entire sense of worthiness, my entire sense of my own lovability came from my perception of how happy other people were with my behavior. It didn't come internally from me at all. It was 100% my perception of other people's happiness with what I was doing. And so my addiction was people-pleasing. I gave of myself relentlessly to the point where, forget my cup not being full, my cup was empty. I was resentful but terrified I didn't, I didn't understand why everybody else, in air quotes, why everybody else could get their own way just by being a colossal ass. And I was stuck, forced to, to give of myself endlessly to make them happy. And at some point after, it was all after I severed ties with my mom in January of 2012, 
And I was like doubling down on therapy and really trying to figure out what the hell was going on and making making peace with myself as a mother protecting her kids, but also making peace as the wounded daughter who was never going to have the relationship with her mother that she craved. I had to figure out how to give myself that love because nobody else was going to do it. That was totally up to me. Nobody was there to rescue me. I had to figure out how to rescue myself. It really came through writing and through art, the creation of paintings gave me like a meditative, creative outlet. And I and I realized over a period of a, I don't know, a year or two, maybe three, that my value, my lovability, the sense that I was deserving of love and respect and belonging and connection had absolutely nothing to do with any other person on the planet. It only had to do with me. And that just by the sheer fact that I was taking breath into my lungs every day made me worthy of love and belonging. And then I was able to slowly start put the pieces, putting the pieces back together, one piece at a time. It's hard to acknowledge that the struggle that we're in with our teenagers is something that we helped design. It really is. And I wish there was a softer way to have this conversation with parents. But if you're listening to this show, if you if you work with me on the on the parenting teens that struggle Facebook group, if you if you come to the Monday night free support calls for parents, you see that softness is something that we have to walk away from at some point when our teens are struggling this deeply and we've got to jump feet first off the high dive canning cannonballing into the deep end of the work the brab b-r-a-b beyond risk and back the brab app that i created on brabapp.com is very much designed to just get to the heart of the matter asap we got to do it right now. A lot of my listeners, we don't have the luxury and time to have an extended version of self-care, uh, dealing with our traumas. But that doesn't mean we don't do that stuff first. You have to do that stuff first. You know, you've listened to this show. You know self-care is first. You know it's mirrors up time instead of finger-pointing time. So on brabapp.com, that, that dashboard is your access to 56 classes, everything I have ever taught a parents, dealing with the good, the bad, and the ugly. The red course is for that really hard stuff, the really intense beyond risk crisis stuff. Like a traffic light, life has come to a full stop in the red. The yellow is the warning sign that things are going to go either green or red, and you have to double down on presence and attention. The at-risk behavior lives in the yellow. And the green courses for when things are going good, things are, things are actually going okay, how do you make them great? How do you take this child who's doing well and, and change your parenting style so that they're inspired to become a world changer? Well, there's a little 10 question quiz you're gonna find out on which course you'll start with. You get all three for the cost of one week worth of coffee because I have to make this affordable. This has to be accessible to all parents. 
Go to brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com. Take the quick quiz and download the parenting courses. This is your masterclass of how to be a parent to a kid in crisis, a kid at risk, or a kid who's doing okay. But let's get back to Marcy. Let's talk about permission. Give yourself permission to do the work. All right, Marcy, let's, let's, let's dive deep into permission because in all the years of teaching and, and doing therapeutic interventions and coaching interventions and seminar interventions, one of the most powerful tools I have ever come across was asking permission to do the work before we do the work and getting the buy-in. But we're not necessarily talking about getting permission from your kids or getting permission from a client. We're talking about getting permission from that stubborn a-hole in the mirror. Yeah, it was a very big epiphany to me when I realized that for 45 years of my life, I had been asking other people for permission to do things that I wanted to do. And at that point, I realized that that was just bullshit, that I didn't need anybody else's permission. And I all I needed was my own. I needed to say, Marcy, this is for you. You owe it to yourself. This is what you have to do to heal. This is what you have to do to move forward. I've always envisioned that there was more to my life than there was. And this was the time to figure it out. And there was a point when I started, I was writing articles for the Elephant Journal before my before I decided to write my book. And one of the articles was about choosing the people who I let in my life. And I realized that I didn't have to be a revolving door and I didn't have to, you know, open my, my doors metaphorically to everybody, that I owed it to myself to be very specific, to curate the people I allowed in my life. And I didn't need anybody else's permission to do that. And what I, what the words that I used was that for so long, I had felt like I was outside of my own life looking in like an, uh, an, an air, uh, an airplane endlessly circling an airport waiting for permission to land, which is where the title of my book came from, and where the whole metaphor of giving myself permission was birthed. So Last November, I suddenly had this epiphany that the next step in this permission journey for myself was to take this mission publicly, and that I had to walk the talk or talk the walk or wherever that goes. And and where I have been walking my students in age-appropriate ways, because they're 16, 17, 18 years old, um, through lots of these lots of the healing journey with me talking about mental health and talking about meditation and talking about our own worth and giving ourselves permission. I've been doing this with my students for a very long time. So I started the Permission to Heal podcast as the next step out of this. And so what my mission is with the podcast is to interview anyone and everyone in the wellness or healing space about how we do this for ourselves. It's all within our power. So I've been interviewing um, yoga instructors and people who know about somatics and people who know about Chinese medicine and herbalists and therapy and um, to combat eating disorders for ourselves and our children, um, conscious parenting, things about physical health and aging well and fostering wisdom and community mindedness and empathy and all of these modalities to not only help myself along this healing journey, but take 
as take all my listeners with me. So we talk about journaling and we talk about mindfulness and we talk about gratitude. And you can be having the shittiest, awful day and wake up feeling like crap and go to bed feeling like crap. And, you know, you're shitting on everyone and everyone's shitting on you. But I guarantee you, if you sit five quiet moments and focus on your breath and clear your mind, you can find at least one thing that you're grateful for. Even if it's, I'm still here and I've survived long enough to take this breath into my lungs. That's something to be grateful for. Grateful for the roof over your head. Grateful for the meal. Grateful for the fact that you still love your kid, your spouse, your sister, whoever it is, and you're still in there fighting for it. For, for the relationship, for health, for love, for, for connection. Um, when you start paring it down, it doesn't have to be some lofty thing. And then slowly, as these things get practiced, they start to become something that you're conscious of, and they start to change the way you're looking at things. Like, I know every day I'm going to spend at least five minutes writing in my journal. And I have a, a gratitude jar on my dresser and every day I put something that I'm, I write something that I'm grateful for on a little piece of paper and I stick it in this gigantic mason jar on my dresser in my bedroom. And so all day I'm going through my life, you know, living my life, being mindful of things, but I'm also thinking about what am I going to do? What am I going to create? What is going to be my mindset today that I'm going to write about in my journal? A question about this that I know a lot of yeah. parents have is to what end? Why are you doing the gratitude? Taking it changes minutes? your brain. It changes the way Got you look it. at everything. It yeah. changes your mindset. It changes the way you show up, not only for your kid, show up at your job, but yeah. more importantly, it changes the way you show up for yourself. And the way we show up for ourselves, if we're showing up for ourselves at all, is where everything begins. You can't be there for anyone else until you figure out how to be there for yourself. So what's first? Is it is it the, the gratitude jar? And, and I'm looking at your, your journal workbook, your books, the podcast, you know, the, the art you sell, your scarves are gorgeous. I, the, the, uh, what, what's first? What, what do you tell if, if a parent comes to you and they're just like, okay, so do I look in the mirror and say, Aaron, I give you permission to heal. I said, you know, maybe that then feels- where do you begin? Yeah. And what, what's, what's the beginning? What's step one? For me, I, I always recommend writing. Get yourself a, a, a one of those marble notebooks from the dollar store, the kind that you used when you were in elementary school. I've got four of them sitting right over here. They are my right. favorite notebooks. Or the notepad app in your smartphone right. or a, a Google Doc on your computer. I don't care where you write it. You could start with making a list. What are the most important things in my life? You could use the word gratitude. You could use the word value. What are my values? What do I want? What do I yearn for? What do I need to fix? But make a list. You know, for me, it's always priority. What can I do first? You know, what's the most important thing to do first? And then the idea is to get yourself to start thinking about what you value and then start to brainstorm how you can make those values three-dimensional in your life, how you can live according to those values. And maybe you only pick one to start with, because tackling sure. more than that at a time is just asking for too much trouble. Pick one thing that you can do for yourself that is in, in parallel to your values, that's good for your physical and emotional health, and that you, can, you think you can keep doing for five minutes a day. 
because that's really all it takes to make change. Five minutes a day, consistency over time. I wrote my the, the companion journal to my book, which is Permission to Land Personal Transformation Through Writing, as a way for readers to take this process that I took when writing my book and coming up with my own healing myself, really, um, where they can take this to their own life. So I literally start out with uh, guided prompts, like how would I describe myself in 15 words? I originally had it as a lot more than that, but I found when I was beta testing my questions that it was really hard for a lot of people to come up with 15 words to describe themselves. And you don't have to use adjectives. You can use titles, use mom, use teacher, use podcaster, you know, you could use creative, you could use verbs, uh, running, swimming, like I I don't, it didn't really matter. Um, What do I love about my life right now? And even if you're living in the middle of a shitstorm, there may be something that brings you joy right now whatever that is. Maybe it's the morning latte. Maybe it's your pillow. Maybe it's cuddling with your dog. Maybe it's the five minutes you spend with your family at dinner when you're all together. Or it could even be the fight I had with my daughter was the best interaction I had all day because at least she was talking to me. Right. You know, it could be anything. And then I, I take people backward. As a child, what were your dreams? How have your dreams evolved throughout time? I want people to learn to understand themselves and who they were and and how they've evolved. And then I want to talk about fear. So of what am I or was I the most afraid and what did that feel like? What does unconditional love mean to me? Who were my parents and how did they influence who I became? And so I'm I I want self-awareness and self-acknowledgement. And I think that our society has, especially in the middle of this pandemic that we're in, people are chasing their tails around. We are being come at by every single angle, you know, financially, and everybody feels unsafe. Everybody's scared to varying degrees. The political climate is crazy. The, the the kids are fearing much worse than we are with all of this, because at least we have some more world experience to temper this right, with. Right. You know, the last year and a half is only, you know, a small fraction of my life versus my nephew, who's seven. This has been like a third of his life. Right. You know, so he has much less experience dealing with the shitstorms of life than I do. So we have to start to try to make sense out of out of these things by going back and digging deep into who we were, what our families were like, what our siblings were like, our memories from school, etc. And then our romantic lives. You know, I mean, I think that marriage, divorce dating for 10 years in my 40s and then remarriage in my 50s taught me more about myself than almost anything else. Because how do you get involved, how you show up for a new relationship is very indicative of how you've been handling past or current relationships in your life. It started to be very clear to me that I was a doormat and I was addicted to people-pleasing when I would go out on first dates with guys and immediately like sublimate my own opinions in favor of theirs. Right, right. I started to see that from the get-go, I was introducing myself as a non-entity. I was introducing myself as somebody who was a people-pleaser instead of 
letting them get to know who Marcy actually was. And I dated for a long time and very rarely got out of first date syndrome because I wasn't being honest with the people I was sitting across the table from. I was I wasn't being honest with myself. And so I went back to my own advice with a list. And I made a list of all the criteria in a relationship that I wanted and all the deal breakers. And I literally went out on dates with this list on my phone and I put it in front of a guy. <laughs> what what it taught me was that it was more important for me to like myself with the guy I was with than it was for the guy to like me. Let's let's drive people to your refueling station because this okay. is, I mean, I'm so sold on the concept of, of this permission of just saying, from now on, I'm putting me first, What right. who I am. And that discovery of who I am outside this relationship, outside this struggle, outside of me being a parent of a teen that can't get their act together. Who am I? Why am I like this? Why do I react like this? And then that self-process of, of evaluation and the writing, of course, which I'm just totally in love with is this personal discovery course. So you have so much more for them. Where do they go to get you? Where do they go to get Marcy? Permission to land searching for love, home and belonging is the memoir and the guided journal called personal transformation through writing are all available anywhere you would buy books online. They're also available at my website, marcybrockman.com real easy. M A R C I. And I'm there. This K M A N N. Yeah. There, this is a beautiful website. I I've been navigating around while we're talking and marcybrockman.com. There's two ends at the end of Brockman. Want to make sure people hear that. What else? From there, you can get to all my socials. You can get to uh, the podcast, uh, permission to heal is everywhere you listen to podcasts. I am everywhere. New episodes come out every Wednesday. Episode 49 comes out tomorrow. Nice. And if you uh, sign on to be one of my friends, join my mailing list on my website, you get a free video driven, interactive, expressive writing course that will walk you through the beginnings of journaling. Um, on your own. So I give you a little bit as to why journaling works and a little bit of brain neurological training. Not very much because I'm an English teacher, not a scientist. And I walk you through, uh, you know, a half a dozen or more uh, writing prompts that you can get for yourself from the book as well. So so it's all there. MarcyBrockman.com is the hub of everything. And your your YouTube page is awesome as well. What's up, Marcy? And oh, all the and you. all the videos yeah, you got have. Two YouTube channels. I've got What's Up Marcy is a YouTube channel filled with videos about mental health and so on, and a companion blog at What'sUpMarcy.com. Nice. All, all of them are linked from the MarcyBrockman.com. And Permission to Heal the podcast has its own uh, YouTube channel as well, which because uh, sometimes people like to watch the videos more than they just like to listen to me speak. So. How do you, how would you tell a parent to give their child permission to be a wreck, to, to just be this thing, this thing that's happening? How do we express permission to our children that we can say to them, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. This will be okay. Some of it comes down to modeling. You know, we all go through struggle. You know, I, I think... We, we have to humanize ourselves to our parents. 
I mean, to our children and allow them to see us have terrible days and not always have it together and yet still put one foot in front of the other and still try our best, do the next right thing and then the next right thing and just keep going. I think it's important to allow them to acknowledge that they feel like crap some days or that things right now in this particular season are not going well, but this is just right now. This isn't going to be forever. And their perspective may be skewed because they're you're young. I don't know what age we're particularly talking about, but we can see having survived what we've survived that it's not always, quote unquote, this bad. Stuff does get better. And reassure them that no matter what happens, no matter how dicey it gets, no matter how much rain falls, no matter how much hail hits you in the noggin, I will always be there. I'm not going anywhere. Reassuring and consistency and modeling go a very long way. While we were talking to Marcy, I came to the realization, you know, right before this episode, I had just come back from the gym. I received some information from the doctor about my arterial age. I don't like it. It's not good. And it's, it's, it's genetic, but it's also put me into a place where I have to give myself permission to do this work now as I do a lot of work. I'm, I'm very body conscious. I'm very body centered sometimes in a dysfunctional way, but now at my age, I have to make a change. I have to make a change. I don't get to say, well, you know, I just, I'll just do this. It'll be okay. It's not okay anymore. It's not just fitness and it's not just nutrition. It is, I really want to be here for my kids as they grow up to be adults. I want to live to 120. I want to be around. Just like as a parent you are with your kids, no matter how bad it gets, you got to take that next step, like Marcy said, and you've got to model that. You've got to say, whoop, I don't like what's going on, so I'm going to step into this. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to mirror up, and I'm going to do my part of the work because someone has to set the groundwork for the recovery in the family. Do you expect it to be the child? That is the work. I want to thank Deepin Productions for this awesome music and producing this podcast. I want to thank Your Cause Consulting for making sure that my episodes are getting in front of the parents who need these episodes. This is a niche market. This is not a wide net. So I do depend on a really clever marketing company to figure out where I need to be posted. And parents, thank you. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening to these guests. Thanks for listening to their stories and their work and their support. You matter. You're worth it. Give yourself permission to do what we say at the end of every single episode. You have permission to take care of yourself first. You have permission to take care of your adult relationships second. And you have permission to put your children third. Because if we do those first two things in that order, We'll do our best work with our kids. Go to marcybrockman.com, two ends, and check out all the support she has for you. She has a lot. I'll see you next week. <laughs>